Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. So, Martin, you're going to be jealous of my fridge. Wait, why? Because my fridge is filled with tons of good food right now that I cooked. Yeah? I've never been into cooking, but uh, yeah, I don't know why. Just like for some reason, moving here has made me more interested in it. And I made a Ukrainian recipe called borscht. Yeah. And I should share it with you later. Yeah. Because I have no idea what that is. It is so I put sausage in it, and then one of the traditional things you do is like it's like a soup, but it's like a really, really hearty soup. And I guess you don't like soup that much now that I'm talking about it and remembering nah, your soup, food preferences. Not a real food. But like it's it's just like potatoes and beets and carrots oh, and cool. onions and tomatoes and all kinds of like super healthy things. It's probably the healthiest thing I've ever made. And like eaten on a regular basis. Good job. Except maybe like those big stir fries I used to make. I'm proud of you, son. But yeah, it's really good. And when I was making it, I realized like you could very easily make this both dairy free and vegan. Yeah. The only dairy in it is it's the just sour cream. Vegetables and stuff. Yeah, it's just like mostly vegetables. And then like I guess like the traditional thing to do is to put sour cream on it. And uh, that taught me that I actually like sour cream. Because oh. I've always hated sour cream when they put it on like nachos and Mexican food. Because it's by itself, but mixed in to that soup, it's amazing. So yeah, I guess I forgot you don't like soup. So sorry for recommending you the wrong I food. Like miso. That's true, miso. And th- is that because it's like so simple and there's only like one or two things in it or something? Yes. Huh? Are you one of those people who just likes to mindfully taste each ingredient? Yes. Ain't you ever seen ratatouille? No, actually. What you haven't? No. Oh, I, I never wanted. I never had any interest, and usually at at the age I think I was when that came out, I would see things if my siblings watched them, and they didn't watch that, so I didn't see it. Oh no! Yeah, I never seen it. Ash is going to be really disappointed with you. You there's a Disney movie you haven't seen. That's like fine. a recent one, a good one. That's fine. I've read Harry Potter like forty times. She'll probably be okay with it. That's true. Yeah, well, that is the prerequisite for being her boyfriend. I think read Harry Potter at least forty times. But no, dude, Ratatouille is like one of my favorite Pixar movies. It's like between that and uh, and Incredibles, I think. Hmm. I mean, Inside Out was amazing, but I still think those two are kind of top of my boat, at least for me. And in Ratatouille, if you would watch it, there's this scene where like the rat has his friend taste some cheese and then has him taste the strawberry. And then he's like, all right, now now put them together. And it's like beautiful harmony and music. That's two ingredients. That's fine. Right. But take that further. And that's when you start getting Well, you can really take a lot stuff. of things too far, though. Look, man, all I'm trying to say is like tomatoes on their own, okay. Potatoes like on their own, okay. Like onions on their own, pretty, pretty, pretty okay, you know? But put it all together in a really good soup. Mm. I'd rather just stir fry all the same Friggin ingredients dope. together. All the same ones? Yeah. Well, I don't like tomatoes. Oh, uh, okay. Like the taste or the texture? Texture. 
because Anna's the exact same way. So I've learned just to not use like diced tomatoes in anything. But if I use a sauce, then she's fine with it. Yeah. Or like crushed tomatoes, she's fine with it. I'm going to be a chef. I'm not going to be a chef. <laughs> Fair. That would require me to go to culinary school and probably not podcast. Yeah. And then work in a kitchen. And uh, I've seen the movie Waiting. So I'm not going to do that. <laughs> anyway, we are going to analyze a book today. Um, it's called The War of Art, Not the Art of War, which I haven't read actually. Maybe we should do that at some point. I don't know. That'd be cool. But I think my friend Matt recommended this to me, and I read this book. I would say to sum this book up, uh, I would just say, like, do your work. <laughs> yeah. Like, the whole thing's kind of about getting over the resistance to the work yeah. that means the most to you. It's kind of a weird book um, because it's broken into three parts, and the third part gets, like, pseudo-religious, I would almost say. Yeah. Well, I think he says explicitly that for him it's religious, but he also yeah. says if you're not, you can just interpret all this metaphorically and it's still fine. Yeah. So I guess to, to, to say up front, like, I think this is a good book to read for anybody struggling with procrastination or struggling with resistance to getting their work done anyway. It is basically a meditation on that and on what you can do to get over that. Um, I found it very motivating. I highlighted a lot of stuff in this book, but it is interesting because he breaks it down into three parts. So you have part one, which is basically defining resistance as like this real enemy to be fought, not just, oh, I'm procrastinating or, oh, I don't feel like doing this, but like resistance, he, he gives it all these qualities. Like it's, um, you know, it never goes away. Yeah, he personifies it quite a bit. It's very personified. It's like something to be defeated and overcome. And then part two is called Turning Pro, which is all about this pro mindset versus the amateur mindset and how pros get over resistance and get their work done. But then part three is kind of religious, I suppose. Well, he's talking about like the source of inspiration. Yeah. He talks about like the Greek muses and how real artists know that uh, their best work doesn't really come from themselves, but instead they they feel like they're tapping into some greater source of inspiration or source of creative energy yeah in the universe and for him it is kind of a religious experience as a quite non-religious person what i took from that is the flow state is mysterious and inspiration is mysterious and when we just try to go at it head on and think that our conscious minds can tap into that energy then it's very difficult so yeah, for, it for comes thousands from of years. places and situations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for thousands of years of human history, people have um, interpreted that dichotomy, the conscious brain running up against a wall because it's overthinking things versus the mysterious origin of inspiration and where creativity comes from as a connection to something higher, yeah. like the muses or like the universe or the infinite or whatever it's called. Well, even etymologically, that makes a lot of sense because if you notice, inspiration and respiration are related because inspiration comes from basically more or less the idea of a higher being breathing something into you. Oh. Filling you with the divine inspiration and knowledge and purpose. That's not that's not one of your bad etymology definitions, no, is it? <laughs> Always got to make sure. Yeah, I didn't make that one up on skeptical. the spot. 
What was you, what was that bad etymology thing you were going to start? Uh, I forget the first one. Oh, the was first like one was uh, salmon. Salmon. And I said it was salmon, coming from sal, the Spanish word for salt, and mon being short for monstruo, which is monster. And because it comes from the ocean and it's a salt monster and salmon used to attack things, and it's not true at all, but it kind of makes <laughs> sense if you don't think too hard about it. You should start a bad etymology podcast. Yeah. I'll work on that and I'll, I'll miseducate the masses. I forget. Is it etymology or entomology? Because one is entomology bugs, is right? insects. That's right. Insects. Yeah. Just Is it just insects or is it like bugs in general? Um, like arachnids and stuff like that? You know, I don't know. Didn't you work in an entomology department yeah, I once? I worked in IT in an entomology department. Well, that means you had access to all the information. I don't remember if if entomology is specific to insects or if it includes other arthropods. It does say insects here. Okay. So in the past, the term insect was more vague, and historically a definition of entomology included terrestrial animals and other arthropod groups like arachnids, earthworms, land snails. Um, Yeah, so I guess the field probably deals with those kinds of things too, which is cool because I want to study land snails. Yeah. That sounds pretty sweet. Anyway, so let's dive into this book and let's just go in order. So let's start with part one, uh, resistance. So what were some of the things that you found particularly, I don't know, useful or interesting from that part? Okay, so a lot of this book is formatted kind of very short, one-page little mini chapters. It's like Mm -hmm. a bunch of quotes. It's a bunch of inspirational quotes and like short excerpts on on a concept. Yeah. So a lot of what I pulled from this is just directly quotable. But okay. um, the first thing that I saw that was really interesting to me was when he said, like a magnetized needle floating on a surface of oil, resistance will unfailingly point to true north, meaning that calling or action it most wants to stop us from doing. And then he mm. later says, the more important a call or action is to our soul's evolution, the more resistance we feel toward pursuing it. So those in combination, it's like the thing you're most scared of is the thing that's probably the best thing for you to do, which I've heard before, but in such sometimes quotes like this, you need to see in a certain wording yes. or at a certain time in a certain state of mind for mm-hmm. him to speak to you. And because of these things, while I was reading it, I took some time to think about the things that I might be resisting things that like I get repeatedly excited about the same things. And then every time I'll get really excited about it, and then I'll overwhelm and talk myself out of it within like a half hour. And I'll be like, no, you're right. I probably should just stay the same and not do these things, huh? Okay. And then I feel all downtrodden because yeah. I've talked myself out of inspiration for no reason. I find a reason to resist it. Yeah. And that that just like made a lot of sense to me. You know what? Let, let's go deeper on that. I know we have this big outline sitting next to us that we feel like we need to get through. But I think it might be more valuable to actually analyze that idea so like what specifically do you feel that resistance to doing like what are the things that come to your mind well so some of the resistance i feel is toward taking language studies more seriously again or working on several web projects that i don't want to detail but i've got a lot of side projects i'm interested in taking taking photography more seriously or even for a while I started – I stopped being vegetarian at one point when I was injured in an effort to sort of maximize protein and, and B12 and the things that would help me recover my nerves to my understanding. Mm-hmm. And all the time, like every few weeks, I'd be like, I don't really like this. I want to stop, stop eating meat again. But then I'd talk myself out of it. 
over and over and over, and I'd have this same phase happen. And the same thing happens with, should I should I study French more seriously again? No, I shouldn't do that. That's just me trying to reclaim my past. Ooh, clever resistance. You got me. Mm. But then, like, the things that I get super inspired about over and over, I every once in a while, when I'm unsure of what I want to do, I'll write out a list of, like, what is me? What is the stuff that means the most to me? And inevitably, I write the same list every time, mm-hmm. like every few weeks for, for the last several years. It's the same list. So these things keep popping up, but then maybe due to the injury, maybe due to the fact that the injury made me – it made me have to stop taking language so seriously. It made me stop my language blog because I couldn't type. And just the – like the feeling that I had from having to give up those things – if you've seen, you know, you inside out, you know, like the yeah. little island falls apart. Yeah. And then it just made me like sort of scared to take those things seriously again without some sort of really minimized rational approach. And mm. these quotes helped me to just think I'm terrified of these things because I care about them. And in fact, another quote he has is that if you didn't love the project that is terrifying you, you wouldn't feel anything. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. Yeah. And I just think that that stuff is really useful. Yeah. If you don't feel scared about something, then it's likely you're apathetic about it. So yeah, you just, it, it doesn't matter to you if you do it. So like, yeah. I don't care to get back into uh, making a new rap album. Don't care. I'm not scared of it. I just don't care. So that's not a project I should be working on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that was one of the the best quotes from the first part for me as well. Uh, and with regards to my work, Right now, I'm writing a series for another channel, and I'm not 100% sure if I'm allowed to talk about it, so I just won't talk specifically yeah, cool. about I what it is. I talk about my website uh, projects. But just, I, am, I am writing a series for another channel. It's something that's very near and dear to me. And whenever I ask myself, like, what, what am I most resistant to doing right now? It's writing those scripts. Because... And, you know, and I'll tell myself, like, I'll, I'll bring up these rationalizations like, oh, I still have time to do that or I work better under a deadline. Or um, right now I just don't feel like that humorous type of writing style that I need to get into to write this thing right now. Uh, and it's it's all just masking the fact that I'm afraid that I'm not going to do justice towards this thing that I really care about a lot. And like he says, that is an indication that that's the most important thing for the development of of my soul, I guess, at this time. Yeah, and it, and he says that when we rationalize, the problem is the human brain is very, very clever. Yeah. And basically, I can argue myself into or out of anything. Mm-hmm. So you can't trust yourself. All those things you might state may be true. Maybe you do work good on, on a deadline. Maybe, yeah. maybe you're not in the right mood right now. Mm-hmm. But just because it's right doesn't mean you're not just trying to trick yourself into not doing it. Yeah, exactly. I'm like a more overall, like, universal level, not just with regards to my work that I do now. I think the thing that I often feel the most resistance to doing is stuff that is related to music because all of my life I've loved music and I listened to tons of it. And, um, I mean, you know that you and I have pretty different ways that we interpret music. Yeah. For me, it's much more rhythmic and I'm really interested in the interplay between like percussion and bass and all kinds of stuff. So there's like parts of my brain that are pretty squished down that are just like, you should probably learn to dance or sing or learn an instrument again. And all these rationalizations always come up. Um, one of the biggest ones is like, no, you have to do things that create 
a tangible, useful value to people that, you know, help them in their lives. Um, and music isn't that, even though I know it is because yeah, even one, though that's like, not even true, a world without art would be horrible because we wouldn't be happy. We wouldn't have feelings and emotions. It would just be all logic. Um, but I see myself as like that ultra logical person who has to create, I don't know, productivity stuff or, or code or do really scientific things. Uh, so I always use that as an excuse to not get into music. And then I remember when I grew up, um, like from my teenage years onward, I played guitar and I was always pretty good at playing scales and making stuff up, but I always had a hard time understanding what keys were. Like if somebody's like, Hey, play in the key of G, I have no clue what that means. And I don't know how to read music and I can't really play any songs. So I've always told myself like, Oh, I'm just bad at playing instruments. It's just like not for me. But it's a similar thing with learning languages, right? Everyone tells themselves, oh, I'm not cut out for learning languages. I'm not cut out to be a musician. When in reality, that is the reason that they're not able to do it because they have blocked their minds from becoming open to the possibility that it's just something to be learned and practiced. Yeah, you're not cut out to do anything that you won't do. Yeah. I can tell you that much. (laughs) And just just like music, it's really easy with language, especially if you live in America, to say... Well, I don't really need to because for the most part you need you don't really need to. Like if I if I do take if I study up French again, get myself back to where I was, I don't actually need that here. The same way you don't actually need to play an instrument. So it's really easy to rationalize, yeah, but there's not a concrete benefit for that. What's the point? Mm-hmm. Well, what's the point of anything? You just you make one up. Do you like it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um now we have we have like those overarching doubts about our own abilities like i'm not cut up for music i'm not cut up for language another thing he mentions is we will rationalize not doing our work because we feel like it needs to be in another form um and there was a there was a thing in the book i think it was called resistance and this book i have it written down let's see if i can find it. it's on page 30 i think yeah so to give you some background stephen pressfield the guy who wrote this is primarily a fiction author And he writes like historical and mythical fiction about like ancient Greeks and warriors and stuff like that. So he writes in the book that when he sat down to write this particular book, The War of Art, he had this creeping doubt about writing a nonfiction book. And he's like, oh, well, I'm a writer of fiction. This should be a work of fiction. I should sit down and rework it and spend more time thinking about it. Maybe make it like a a war piece or something that's like tied to the ancient Greeks. And then he realized... All of those thoughts are just clever rationalizations for not starting in on the work. And I get the exact same thing. I'll get a cool idea. I'll be really excited for it. And I'll start working on it. And then a doubt will come up about the path I've chosen being the wrong one. Like you and I are currently working on this video, my morning routine. And I had an idea of what it should be. And then we shot a bunch of footage. I started editing it. And I'm like, hey, this would be really cool if it was like a short film. And I didn't do any narration. And I've been really excited about it, but there's times where I'll look at it and I'll be like, hmm, maybe this isn't the right way to do it. Maybe if I don't narrate it, people aren't going to understand some of the things or um, the YouTube algorithm isn't going to be kind to this format. Maybe it won't do very well. I think any path you take, there's going to be some downside or some at least perceived downside. And that can become a really powerful agent of resistance. Well, it's really scary to do something and know or at least feel that you can't take it back. Yeah. 
You know, and that's no matter which path you take, even if it was the best one, you can't possibly see the opportunity cost of everything else. So mm-hmm. there will always feel like there was something that could have been different. So this is a really – it's a clever rationalization, but it's just not worth following because it exists for every single decision. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I'm going to skip to part two for a second here because I think this is relevant. There's a section called a professional does not take failure or success personally. And this is the idea that when you adopt the mindset of a professional who shows up every day, who does their work, who doesn't put their ego into it, who doesn't attach themselves as a person too much to their work, they don't take failure personally and they don't take success personally because they know even though they've invested a lot of time into whatever they've made, it isn't them. And tomorrow they're going to wake up and they're going to make something new again because that's the mindset of a professional. You keep making things over and over again. So I think it's useful to think about that when you get these these fears of failure or the fear that you're not doing whatever you're doing in the correct way because no matter what, you're going to put it out and it's either going to succeed or it's going to fail or it's going to be in the middle like most things. And then tomorrow you're going to wake up and do the next thing. And you will have learned something from that experience, no matter how well it did, no matter how well an audience received it. Uh, and you're going to be able to take that and apply it to your next project. Yeah, yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. And actually, this is also from part two, but whatever. It's it's a slow <laughs> merge. It's an accident. But uh, he tells us that, well, he says the Bhagavad Gita, which I I can't remember. I think it's Hindu. I think Hindu so. Book, tells us that we have a right only to our labor, not to the fruits of our labor. So the point is to do the work for the joy of the work rather Mm -hmm. than any benefits or praise. And I think the not taking even success personally is interesting because lots of people will tell you don't take failure personally because it's like a don't get too hurt, keep working, kid. But if you take success too personally, if you identify with that success, let's say I feel my purpose was to – create that album I created in college. If that was my only purpose, well, I did it now. Mm -hmm. If I'm that success, that success is over. So what do I do now? If it's about the work, well, I keep working. But if it's about that outcome, the outcome already happened. So I'm now out of a purpose. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? That reminds me of something in part three. So I guess... We're just going to jump around. (laughs) Yeah. Screw dividing this podcast up into three different sections for three different parts because a lot of it loops back and connects. And while part three was really, really focused on muses and pseudo-religious stuff, there was one section that I really resonated with, and it was this section about territory versus hierarchy. So I'm just going to read a quick excerpt here. Uh, In the animal kingdom, individuals define themselves in one of two ways, by their rank within a hierarchy, like a hen in a pecking order or a wolf in a pack, or by their connection to a territory, a home base, a hunting ground, or a turf. And this is how individuals, humans, as well as animals, achieve psychological security. They know where they stand, and the world makes sense. Of the two orientations, the hierarchical seems to be the default settings. It's the one that kicks in automatically when we're kids, naturally run around a packs or clicks and without thinking about it we know who's top dog and who's the underdog and we know our own place so essentially we define ourselves by our standing within a hierarchy but he, he points out that as an artist or as anybody doing work that is valuable to them you know you could be you could be like mowing lawns or something you don't have to be an artist painting the next van gogh or something when you view yourself in terms of a hierarchy 
you don't look inward and you don't use what is inside of you to create your art. You look at what's going to look good to the audience or how does this um, help or hurt my place within the hierarchy. And I struggle with this so much uh, and it gets, it gets harder like every single day because the work I do on YouTube, on podcasts, like there are natural hierarchies built into every aspect. How many views did this video get? How many likes did this video get versus the views? How many comments? Um, what's my subscriber rank on YouTube? All that kind of stuff. And the more my business has grown and the more subscribers the channel has gotten, the more I have like this pressure and this feeling to create what is quote unquote right for where I am in the hierarchy rather than what is just interesting to me. And I remember back when I was just like a really small time blogger in college, I had, you know, very small audience, but it didn't seem like it was my job to create like the ultimate piece of content on topic X or topic Y. I would just do whatever was interesting to me. And I would just, I, I took an hour or two to write an entire article about trying to ride 50 miles on my bike and passing out on the side of the road and wrote tons of jokes into it. Or I did a, I did an article on, um, if then habits and I used magic, the gathering as a metaphor, not because I thought it would play well with an audience, but because I was really into magic at the time. And I'm like, you know what? It would be really cool to break down a magic card and weave that into this idea that I'm forming here. And now like, I think I still do that, but there's this tendency to gravitate towards, all right, Tom, you have this really big study channel. So if you're going to do a video on math or you're going to do a video on morning routines, it has to like look a certain way because you have this many subscribers or like it's it, it this video over here from somebody else got this many views. So if yours doesn't get that many views, it's a failure. And uh, I think that is a detriment to the creation of good art because we're not thinking about what is inside of us. We're just thinking about like, how will this look to everybody else? Well, you know what? That might actually, now that I think about that and hear you say that out loud rather than reading it, I wouldn't doubt that that's what happens to most, you know, like I like their first album better. An artist starts out making oh. their art, but then they get successful and the labels tell them to make what they need. Yeah. And slowly they become just like everybody else because the overall huge audience wants similar things until they're told, no, you actually want this new album you didn't even think of. And then they're like, okay, I agree. But right. for the most part, they don't know what they want. So, yeah, you mean like a, like sophomore slump? Yeah, kind of. It happens to a lot of bands, and I think that is absolutely why it happens. Because when like a band is sales. totally unknown, they write what they want to write, and they play what they want to play. Because maybe they have an aspiration or a hope that it'll be successful, but there's no expectation of success, no expectation of a certain amount of downloads or whatever. It's just. I really want to play this cool guitar solo. I'm going to throw it in there. Or I really want to write this song about uh, Godzilla fighting, I don't know, Chuck Norris or something. Yeah, and even <laughs> I'm going if to nobody do it. listens to it, they're probably still proud of it at that point. Exactly, yeah. And then once you have that audience, now you have this expectation and you see yourself within a hierarchy. And the world tries its best to like drill that in. Oh, your album hit number four on the billboard when it came out in the first week. Or... You know, your last book was number seven on the Amazon bestseller list. You got to beat that next time. And I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to beat your old milestones. I mean, I think that can push you. But when you rely too much on those metrics, 
then you get into a bad spot. Yeah, it'd be easy to forget why you like whatever you're doing in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I found myself sitting there with like a blank page just stuck in this mindset of like what's going to make people laugh or what's going to be most engaging to other people, not what do I want to write here? What do I think would be funniest or what do I think would be most insightful? Yeah. So rather than viewing yourself in terms of this hierarchy and thinking in terms of the hierarchy, what kind of grade will this get? Well, how many views will this get? Think in terms of territory. Like the example he gives in the book is like the gym is Arnold Schwarzenegger's territory. And um, I think actually that reminds me, I think he said to ask yourself like if the world ended or you were the last person on earth, like what would you do? Because if Arnold Schwarzenegger was the last person on earth, he would still go to the gym. Yeah, it's like he says another test to see if you're doing something hierarchically or territorially is of any activity you do, ask yourself if I were the last person on earth, would I still do it? Yeah. Now, I did note that this doesn't actually apply to everything. So, for example, language, or if you were really passionate about helping people, perfectly reasonable (laughs) things, but they both kind of rely on other people being alive. So in that case, I would say... If I had to do this anonymously or exclusively with or around people other than my friends, family, and acquaintances, would I still do it? Yeah, exactly. Because then it's less about the credit you get or where you are relative to your friends and stuff and more about the work itself. I think a lot of these mental exercises are about taking things to the extreme to see if they still hold up. But not every mental exercise like that is going to apply to every situation. So you may need to come up with a different one. Like you just said, yeah, just something, you know, what if I had to do this anonymously? What if I could never get credit for it or anything like that? Really? What if I could only ever speak French, but I'm wearing like this huge mask and you can't see my face and (laughs) no one can ever see me again. And then when I take it off, I can only speak English and they don't know I speak French. I don't want to wear a huge mask all the time. Yeah, that's not, that's not fun. (laughs) Um, so one note on the religious, like part three with all the muses and everything, I don't know like how into all of this that I am. Like, I don't think I'm going to be invoking a prayer to the muses before I write. It's really interesting to read about that, but it's interesting to read about. And I think like anything in religion or mysticism, it always connects back to some real world idea or concept or feeling like I think you know a lot a lot of religions or like cults they're providing concrete answers in a very um uncertain world which is why people are drawn to them so whether or not you believe that a religion or a certain mystical idea or you know some some myth is true there's some kernel of either truth to it or some usefulness to the human experience buried within it uh and one thing that really um clicked with me in this section was this idea of like the magic of making a start. So there's this quote from uh, W.H. Murray, who was a, who was a guy who did like this Scottish Himalayan expedition. I don't know when, probably a long time ago, but it's all about how when you get started, things just seem to work out for you or they seem to click into place. Uh, it seems like the world sort of goes to bat for you. It goes to work for you and starts making things happen, makes you, Uh, able to meet people you wouldn't have otherwise met or just opportunities fall into place. And 
I think like a lot of this is connected to this idea of like connecting to a muse or getting inspiration from something higher than yourself. Because when or before you have started something, you look at the scope of the project and you can look down the line and see roadblocks or just certain aspects of it. And like you'll think, how could I ever do that? That seems way too big and way too crazy. I think a lot of people, when they look at, for me, maybe music or for one of our friends, game development, they look at certain aspects of it and be like, I could never do that. That's too hard. But when you get started, things start to fall into place. And I want to just read the quote because it's worded better than I could word it. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one out that would not otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no man would have dreamed would come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. Begin it now. So basically, like, you can't possibly predict what things will come together when you actually try. So yeah. when you say these things are too big. Exactly. Or when you look you at somebody who's successful, um, I know I've noticed like one thing that people do is they'll look at people who are successful and be like, that person got lucky because of this. Like, oh, you're only in that job because you happen to meet that person who, who had the connection with that CEO or something. Or... You were lucky because you got into stock investing before uh, Apple was huge. So that's why it worked out for you. And they don't make the connection that those quote unquote lucky opportunities only come to people who have positioned themselves into the right places through all of their investments and through starting in the first place. And in the second part of the book, he actually has, he has this part where he talks about how a professional dedicates themselves to mastering the technique, not because they think that the technique is more important than inspiration, but because when inspiration comes, they need to already have the ability to do the technique. You prepare mm-hmm. for inspiration and lucky events. And if you're not prepared, it doesn't matter when they come. You can't do anything with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like picture you're living 2000 years ago and you have to walk a hundred miles across like the Asian steppe or something. And a, a bunch of wild horses come by and then like, Picture two situations. Number one, you've been training in horse riding your entire life and you know how to jump onto one's back or do something to get onto it and ride it. And then like the other situation, you've never done that. In either case, the group of horses happening to run right past you is a lucky event. But in only one of those cases, have you built the necessary skill to take advantage of that lucky event? Yeah, maybe in the other situation, you were like, I'm never going to need to ride a horse. That's stupid. Exactly. I can be good at that. Yeah, and this isn't me telling you to go out and master horse riding so that you can ride across the Asian steppe one day. Sign up for 10 lessons right now. You can do that if you want. But that simplified example applies to your entire life. When I was a freshman, I signed up for this professional development event that a uh, big financial company was holding. And I didn't know it at the time, but one of the things they did as part of that event is they paired up every single freshman who was attending with a mentor in the company. And I was the only MIS person who went to that event. Everyone else was like an accounting student or business administration or marketing or whatever. 
So they ended up pairing me with the vice president of all the company's IT infrastructure. Like if it was networks or servers or anything like that, this dude was vice president of all that. And this is a huge company. So boom, lucky opportunity. I got paired with somebody who had a lot of clout in the company, but had I not had a lot of IT experience, I don't think that we would have really hit it off because I'm like this blank slate freshman who can't really talk much. So I'm just kind of like learning and soaking up information. You know, maybe I would have impressed him with my drive or ambition or something. But what actually happened is I was able to talk with him a lot about IT. And I was able to talk about infrastructure. I was able to talk about um, just like trends in business IT because I had been working for the entirety of that freshman year at the campus IT center, learning a ton about computers, learning how to remove viruses, how to configure networks. And during my free time, I would also read articles on like, um, I forget the name of the site now, Tech Republic. And I would just read about trends in business IT. And I was just interested in that stuff. So I was soaking up as much knowledge as possible. So there is the initial training, the start. And that's what builds up that base of skill and experience that allowed me to take advantage of that lucky opportunity that I didn't know was gonna come along. So two lessons there. Number one, when you start, when you start to just plunge your hands into the muck and start building something, things do happen that you couldn't have anticipated. I could not have anticipated, even had I tried meeting the vice president of IT at a huge company. That was not on my radar at all. I was like, no, I'm just a grunt who works in the IT center at my college. And maybe I'll talk to a, you know, I'll go through like the, the traditional channel. I'll talk to a recruiter and then I'll be interviewed by somebody and I'll get a job. Never in a million years that I think I would just directly get to meet the vice president of IT in a casual setting and be able to go to lunch with him a few times. And number two, the con- like the flip side of that, um, you, ha- you know, like you have to know you need to be ready for these opportunities as they come. Now that doesn't mean get all worried and think you have to practice every little thing in the world so you can take advantage of every little opportunity, but just realize like those lucky opportunities will not be useful to you unless you are prepared for them. So get started. I have friends. I actually have three friends who all mention that they want to do art stuff, but they look at like the people who are able to sell stuff at conventions and like, they're so good and they have so many connections. They're able to sell so much stuff. And I'm like, yeah, just, just start drawing tomorrow. Just like start drawing because eventually day by day by day, you'll get 1% better and you'll look back and you'll be like, holy crap, I have a portfolio now. And some of this stuff is actually good enough to sell. And boom, now you're in the position to maybe go to the coordinator for that convention and show off your work. And they'll be like, yes, you can have a booth or whatever it is. I rambled for like 10 minutes. (laughs) This is a lot of stuff. It is a lot of stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, we could probably wrap it up here. I think this is just like, I think it's a good book to read. That's my summary. It's good. Um, And there's a lot of stuff in this book that I have highlighted and I will probably put on my wall at some point. A lot of the stuff about hierarchy I found very good. Um, Let's see here. Oh, yeah, there was there was one thing I really liked near the end of the book. And it relates to failure as well. Someone once asked the Spartan King Leonidas to identify the supreme warrior virtue from which all others flowed. He replied, contempt for death. For us as artists, read that as failure. 
Contempt for failure is our cardinal virtue. By confining our attention territorially to our own thoughts and actions, in other words, the work and its demands, we cut the earth from beneath the blue-painted, shield-banging, spear-brandishing foe, which in this case is resistance. So again, don't worry about the failure because the fear of the failure is the ultimate root cause of the resistance and the procrastination and the lack of starting. So have contempt for that fa- uh, failure, contempt for death. Yeah, and the fear just, of failure causes way more failure than anything else. Exactly, and I have to remind myself of that all the time. I have fear of failure with this script that I'm doing or with these dance lessons I'm going to take. But you know what? If I don't do them, I fail 100% of the time. So just try them out. And again, the universe, whether it be the muses or just random coincidence, will put things into place that will become opportunities for me to take advantage of and level up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a a great book. And usually with nonfiction... If I can get, if it's this kind of nonfiction, it's not like history or something. If I can pull one or two things, phrases mm-hmm. or moments that inspired me when I was reading them, it succeeded. And this book more than did that. So if you're if you're looking for something, there are enough quotable moments in here that yeah. something might get through to you somehow. Yep. I will probably put this in my essential reads list. The other nice thing about this book is it's 165 pages. and Oh, yeah. I read it in one sitting. Yeah. Most of those pages are not filled with text. Like you said, there's a lot of pages where it's like one, just one thing. Like right here, there's this is a page with two sentences. There's no mystery to turning pro. It's a decision brought about by an act of will. We simply make up our mind to view ourselves as pros and we do it. Simple as that. That's all. Yeah, whole page. So yeah, there's a lot of just really quick pithy things in here, but I found them very useful. It also means and you can read one page a day. One, one little quote a day. If you've never had time to read, there you go. Yeah, you could do it's that. It's like when you have those calendars with the little motivational quotes on them. I've never done well with those kind of things. Oh, I mean, I've never had one. I've just seen them. There's this Wired book called, it's like by Wired magazine called uh, Mad Science, and it's just 365 pages. Each page is some scientific yeah, I think invention I would just read or event. Like a regular book. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, you know what I'm going to do every single day? I'm going to sit down and read one page of this book, and after a year, I'll know 365 new science things. Uh, and I just never did that. Oh. So I've learned that for me, at least, those kind of books don't actually uh, work for me. I need to sit down and actually read a book. But yeah, for you, one sitting, for me, I read this in three days because I read for less time during my reading sessions, but still one part a day pretty much, and then it was done. So I recommend this book because I just really like the whole idea of defining resistance as an enemy, understanding what causes it, and then choosing to turn pro. And you know what? We didn't even talk that much about what he calls turning pro and what this means, but that section of the book is very useful as well. So maybe we'll leave that as like the teaser for people to go actually read it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've I've talked about turning pro before, essentially just not waiting for inspiration, but treating it like a job. You show up and you do it, but he's got a lot more to say about it. So we will have a link to this book over on Amazon in the show notes, so you can check it out there. It's on Kindle. It's on print. That's how I have it in print. And uh, you can find our show notes over at CIGpodcast.com slash 161, because we are on episode 161. We are getting up there. 
So yeah, check those out. You'll also find a link to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, which is a great way to support the show. So thank you if you do that. And you can also head over to collegeinvokeek.com slash resources to find all of our favorite apps and tools and gear for improving your student experience. And you'll also find the link to our uh, essential books page over there as well. So check that out. And other than that, thank you so much for listening and we will see you in next week's episode. Thank you.